so we're back here in Obadiah. Obadiah 1. Let's start by we'll read through. We'll read through Obadiah 1 through 10. Or now we'll go down through 14. Sound good? Obadiah beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise you, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, now God speaking, behold, I have made you small among the nations, among the heathen. You are greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you that dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, who says in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, fence, or from there will I bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how were you cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of your confederacy have brought you even to the border. The men that were at peace with you have deceived you and prevailed against you. They that eat your bread have laid a wound under you. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And your mighty man, O Timon, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have looked on the day of your brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, you should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid the hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. And then this is the pivot verse between the first and the second section, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, all the nations. As you have done, it will be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. So we get this glimpse here at the very start of the book of Obadiah. Let me see if I can see this. I think my eyes are getting worse. It's really little. All right, so we know this is written about Edom, um, the nation of Edom, who was descendant from Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau, these two brothers who fought from the day um, of their conception, really in the womb. Their mother, Rebecca was perplexed. What is this wrestling going on inside of my womb? And God says that, there is going to be tension and strife between the two of them all their days. And he gave this prediction that the older brother, Esau, would serve the younger, Jacob. And we see that played out through history. But what's going on here in this context, Obadiah, this prophet of the Lord, is giving an oracle of judgment against Esau because of Esau's participation in destroying and conquering his brother, Jacob. Remember, this happened about 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, they conquered Israel, uh, the the southern kingdom of Judah, and took them captive back to Babylon and just destroyed the city. Well, Edom participated in that. They helped them. 
So, um, we looked through, let's see, here's our outline for this first half of the book. God's vengeance on Esau. God's vengeance on Esau. And so right now we're working through the sentence for Edom. It's that they're coming upon destruction. But then God will give the evidence against them, Edom's crimes. So we're starting verses 1 through 9 with the sentence. And tonight, will Lord willing, work through verses 5 through 7. Last week we made it through verses 2 through 4. Um, so verses 2 through 4, remember this section, verses 1 through 9, comes in an A, B, A pattern. A, Esau is the target of divine fury, but then he returns to that. Point number three, Esau is target of divine fury. God's wrath has been kindled, his just wrath has been kindled against Esau. But then sandwiched in the middle is Esau is the victim of the nations. God's judgment is going to come through the vessel of the surrounding nations. That's the picture we're getting. And remember, it's a a fleshing out of God's covenant with Abraham. Remember, he said, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and those who bless you I will bless, but those who curse you or mistreat you, he says, I will curse. And so because Esau mistreated Jacob, Edom mistreated Israel, they have now received the curse of God. Following the storyline, there's our refresher. So let's get over here. We talked through verses 2 through 4, remember... Um, he says, you who hide up in the clefts of the rock, even if you soar in the stars like the eagles or like the vultures, from there I will bring you down. And so then we get back to now, verse 5, where Esau is the victim of the nations. Remember back in verse 1, this rumor that went out. Obadiah says, we've heard a rumor from the Lord or a report from the Lord. Apparently a messenger was dispatched from God, probably an angelic messenger who went to the nations. And what was his message? It's at the end of verse 1. Arise ye, rise up. And that shorthand we find from Jeremiah 49, for rise up against her in battle. And so then the response of the nations at the end of verse 1, they say, let us rise up against her in battle. Now we fast forward down to verse 5, and God has been speaking. He says, I'm bringing judgment against Edom, against Esau. But then what we would expect is, him to launch into what kind of destruction is coming. But instead of God saying, this is what I'm going to do, now he zooms back out and he says, now the nations are coming against her and they're going to destroy Edom. So verse five, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how are you cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? So we get this, um, Obadiah kind of presents it in two stages. First, verse 5 gives us the normal operation of thieves and harvesters. How do they normally interact? Then verses 6 through 7 contrasts thieves and grape gatherers with how the nations are going to treat Esau. All right? That's our thought flow. So look at Obadiah, verse 5. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how are you cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? Okay, so think about thieves in the night. Why do thieves break into houses and steal stuff? Because they, they want it, right? But what happens when they've stolen what they want? They leave. They're done. They have what they want. They're satisfied. Sorry? They Like home alone, exactly. Once they're finally satisfied, then they leave and leave the water running. <laughs> the wet bandits. That's right. <laughs> 
So we've got this illustration of thieves. If thieves break in, they're going to steal until they have enough. But then in the middle of this sentence, Obadiah gives us just this seemingly random interjection. He says, how are you cut off? Well, that's interesting. Do many of us talk like that? Like we're in the middle of a sentence and all of a sudden we're just, we just cut ourselves off? Some of us do that, I guess. Yeah. What Obadiah is doing, it's for effect. He's, he's giving this illustration of thieves and robbers, but he's overwhelmed by the magnitude of the destruction coming against Esau. And so he just interjects, how are you cut off? What does that mean to be cut off? Colton? To be set apart? Yeah. Yeah, it's another, another way of saying you've been destroyed. You've been cut off. Your name's blotted out. You are just totally wiped out. Um, another way that it could be translated, it's a word that could be translated either how you have been destroyed, cut off, but also it could be translated how are you silenced. And I think that's interesting in the context because remember what Esau said about himself back in verse 3? You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Esau's smack talking. He's talking smack to the nations, to God. He says, Psh, who can bring me down to the ground? And God says, well, let me show you. And then he gets down here to verse 5 and he says, how are you silenced? You have just been put to silence. There's no more smack talk to be said. You've been proven um, incapable of defending yourself against God's judgment. So Obadiah says, how are you cut off? And at first glance, it might seem that Obadiah is boasting over Edom. And that's one way to take it of just, wow, haha, take that, Edom. You've just been, we just kicked your hiney. But think about where Obadiah is at. He's in Judah. And they themselves, it's the poorest of the people in the land, and they themselves have been destroyed. Rather, it's more likely we should read this as Obadiah's sorrow and God's sorrow over the destruction coming for Esau. Because remember, Esau should have treated Jacob well because Jacob was his brother. But the flip is also true. Jacob ought then be sorry for Esau's demise. Do you follow that line of thought? So Obadiah, he's saying, how are they cut off? He's weeping over this destruction coming for Esau. But then Obadiah resumes his illustration. He says, if those thieves came, would they not steal? Would they have not stolen until they had enough? Then he says, all right, let me give you another illustration. Thieves, they break in, they steal, they leave. Grape gatherers, he says, if the grape gatherers came to you, picture it, we're in a field of grapes and the harvesters are coming. And he says, would they not leave some grapes? He gives this illustration of how the grape gatherers normally operated. Um, think about it. If you're trying to harvest a massive field by hand, you can't focus on getting every shriveled up grape. If there's grapes that fall on the ground, you've got to, at some point, you've got to cut your losses and just harvest the best of the crop and leave the rest. Otherwise, you're going to run out of time. They didn't have a big old harvester like we have. But also, <clears throat> I'll let you look these up. Let me find the slide here. Also, in Israel, it was actually a law. Um, landowners were required by God to leave the corners of their field. If they dropped things, that was called the gleanings. They were required by law 
to leave those things so that the poor of the land could come in and glean and have something to eat. And after the poor had gleaned, then the animals could come and they would have something to eat. Ezekiel? Like exactly, like Ruth. That's Ruth chapter 2, remember? She's the Moabitess and she comes and she goes to Boaz's field, his wheat field, and she gleans in the field and brings home food for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Exactly. Good. So those laws are in Le- Leviticus 19 and 23, Deuteronomy 24, and then it's illustrated in Ruth chapter 2. It's really a fascinating connection that Obadiah is making. He says, if the grape gatherers came to you, picture Esau as the field the grape gatherers were going to harvest. He says, wouldn't they leave some grapes? They wouldn't totally destroy the field. But even the grape gatherers, even if they took all the grapes, do they just wipe out all the vines? I don't think so. I've never gathered grapes, but I think they probably leave the vines standing. But then picture the contrast with the destruction coming for Esau. We've got this contrast between the beginning part of verse 5 correlates with verse 6. So the thieves' illustration, the robbers' illustration, how they come, they steal, and when they're satisfied, they leave. Well, then it compares with verse 6. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are the hidden things sought up? Here's the picture. They've been completely destroyed. Everything has been taken. They have nothing left. They've been pillaged, if you will. This is verse 6. So he says, how are the things of Esau searched out? This is a really interesting verb, a really cool verb. It means to search out, to track down, to examine, or picture the mental image of to hunt down. It's like an animal, and the hunter has been chasing this animal all day. He's been tracking him, chasing him as best he can. And finally, he catches up to the animal and takes it. That's the picture that this word brings. They have been searched out, tracked down, hunted down. Everything they have has been taken. Um, And it says, how are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? This hidden things is kind of a cool combo word. So it has the idea of something that's been hidden but also the idea of something that's a treasured possession. So maybe you have a piggy bank and you keep it hidden from your siblings so they don't take your money. I don't know. Do you hide your piggy bank? Or do you just put it in the real bank? Or if you have your favorite candy, you can't leave it sitting out because someone will steal it. You know, we all have our hidden treasures. Well, what Obadiah is saying is Edom, they had their hidden treasures, the things they prized, and they had hidden them so that Maybe this army's coming against them, but they won't find our treasures. But even their hiding place has been found and all of their treasures stolen. So just imagine that. He contrasts. He says if the thieves came, they would only steal as much as they could carry and they'd leave. But the nations have come and they've taken everything. There's nothing left. But isn't it interesting? Who said they were going to destroy Edom? Earlier in verses 2 through 4. Who said he was going to destroy Edom? Yeah, the nations, they join in battle, verse 1. But verse 2 is direct speech from God. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. But God, through the prophet Obadiah, he zooms back out and he shows how his judgment is coming via the nations. They come and they steal. They destroy. 
But then we get another contrast, or sorry, another comparison. The illustration of the grape, of the grape gatherers correlates with verse 7. So if the grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some grapes? But then verse 7, all the men of your confederacy, that's an alliance, have brought you even to the border. The men that were at peace with you have deceived you and prevailed against you. They that eat your bread have laid a wound under you. There is none understanding in him. So the picture that we get is Edom, as a wise nation, they knew. Edom wasn't a super powerful nation. Remember, they dwelt up in the rocks. There was some farmlands in their land, but not much. So they weren't powerful agriculturally. The best thing they had going for them was their safety when they hid up in the rocks. They could defend their position, but they weren't a powerful army. Ezekiel? Maybe kind of like the Swiss, except I don't think they were neutral. (laughs) I think you just offended your sister. (laughs) But get the picture. Esau, they're not powerful. So what do you do when you know you're outgunned? You know you're overmatched. You can't defend against the enemy. Well, we just played dodgeball, free-for-all dodgeball on purpose because it was an illustration. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but I went around and I made an alliance with a few key people. Nathan and I had an alliance for a long time, and then I went over and made an alliance with Ezekiel and Elise and Zach. <laughs> and we had a traitor in our midst. We played the game. We were having fun. We were, I felt like we as a little alliance were doing pretty good. I felt like we had the field handled. And then Zach betrayed. He broke the alliance. And I was glad you did it, Zach, because otherwise I was going to have to turn around and break the alliance for my own illustration. So thanks for handling that for me. So the picture we get, the picture we get here in Obadiah is Edom sees, they go, oh no. The nations are coming against us to destroy us, and we can't beat them by ourselves. They have alliances, and so they run to their allies, and they say, help, we're going to get destroyed. Come and defend us. And that, in the ancient world, that was how an alliance worked. If someone came against your buddy in battle, you had to go to their aid. You didn't get to sit on the sideline and watch. You had to help them. And so they go to their allies, and they say, come and help us. But what do their allies do? They turn against them. So let's talk through this for a moment. We've got the confederacy. We have two questions about this confederacy or the alliance. The two questions are, number one, who were they? Who were their allies? And question number two, what was their response? How did the allies respond to Edom's plea for help? So let's talk through first, who were these allies? And the text gives us three descriptions of them in verse 7. First of all, it was all the men of your confederacy. All the men of your confederacy. Um, These are, another way this could be translated is they were men of the covenant. Men of the covenant. So think about your biblical history of what you know of a covenant. Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 actually uses this same phrase except it says the woman of the covenant. Um, Speaking of a wife. He talks about this woman of the covenant, it's your wife. Someone... You've made a covenant with. Well, these allies are men of the covenant. Um, So who were the allies? Um, I threw some texts up there. Psalm 137. Remember, that's the psalm written by Israel while they're in captivity in Babylon. 
and they bemoaned that Edom came against them in conjunction with Babylon. Very likely, Edom had an alliance with Babylon, which makes sense because Babylon is the mighty empire on the world scene right now. So if you can get in on Babylon's good side, then you're safe because Babylon can defeat any other army. But we also get a clue in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 3. Um, You don't have to go there, but if you want to look it up later, this is in the reign of Jehoiakim, who was the son of Josiah in Judah. And the Lord tells Jeremiah to send a message. Um, And he says, send them to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the Ammonites, and to the king of Tyre, and to the king of Sidon. So we get several nations there, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. Um, So let me show you a map. Here's a map of the Babylonian Empire. You know where Judah is, right there, well, where that red star is. That's close to, that's close to Judah there. But you have Edom down in just to the south. Which direction is that? Southeast of Judah, Edom, Moab, Ammon. And then let's see. I don't know if you'll be able to see my cursor up here. Can you see that a little bit? Right there. That's where Tyre and Sidon is. They were a mighty... Um, they were mighty city-states. They lived on the sea, and they, had, they were mighty sea warriors. So there's Tyre and Sidon. Moab, Edom, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. Um, I think I have one more map. Nope, I don't. So you'll just have to take my word for it. You could see the city Tyre on there, and then Sidon's just a f- little bit further north. So probably at least Babylon, and then maybe these nations surrounding them. Um, but we get some more clues about... Sorry, my cursor's totally gone. Yeah, we'll just have to roll with it. Oh, there it is. It's there. See? It was just tiny. Okay. But we get a couple more clues. He says, all the men of your confederacy, but then he says men that were at peace with you. This is the point of a covenant. This is a point of a truce in dodgeball. We're at peace with one another. We won't attack one another. We can trust each other. We can turn our backs because we know we're not going to get dodgeballed to the back unless you truce up with Zach. <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Thanks for being the illustration. But get the picture. This is what happens to Edom. These were the nations that were at peace with them. They made an alliance. But then we get one more clue about these allies. It says, they that eat your bread. They that eat your bread. What's that getting at? Well, we, sorry? Okay, trading partners. Yeah, that absolutely could be part of it. It's getting at how you make a covenant. It's how you make a covenant. We have several illustrations of this, um, but I think the one in Joshua chapter 9 is pretty potent. Remember, Israel, they're coming to the promised land, and no one can stand in their way. They're defeating every nation. Um, and leaving them destroyed in their path. And these men of Gibeon, they get a good idea. Because remember, God said you have to destroy everyone who lives in the land of Canaan. Remember that? Don't let any of them go. So Gibeon knows that, and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, we're about to get destroyed. And so they pretend to be from a far country. They put on old ratty clothes, they have moldy bread, their shoes are worn out, and they come to Israel and say, we're here from a far country, and we want to make a truce with you. We want to make a covenant. Well, how do they cut that covenant? If you go back and look at Joshua 9, verses 14 and 15, without consulting God, 
the men took of their victuals, that's their food, and Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And so that's how you made a covenant. You ate together. So when it says, those who eat your bread, it's referring to the covenant that Edom had made with these other nations. They had sat down and ate bread together. They'd made a covenant. They'd made an alliance. They were men of the covenant, men who are at peace with you, men who eat your bread. All referring to this alliance that Edom had with the other nations. So that answers question number one, who were the allies? But then we've got to figure out what was the allies' response? Well, I'm glad you asked because verse 7 gives us four descriptions of the allies' response. First of all, Ezekiel. Yes, they did. (laughs) But the text, these allies of Edom, what did they do to Edom? Unbelievable. 2,500 years too too late. That's okay. All right, so think about this. He gives four descriptions. Beginning of verse 7, all the men of your confederacy have brought you even to your border. They've brought you to your border. So there's something going on here with Edom's borders. They have borders, and kind of the picture we get is Edom runs to their border to go talk to their allies. They say, help, and their allies say, no, go handle it yourself. They send them back to fight on their own, away from their borders. Um, Second, the men who are at peace with you have deceived you. Have we seen this word deceived anywhere before in Obadiah? Or should I ask it this way? Where have we seen this word deceived before in Obadiah? Nathan? Zoe? That's right, verse 3. In verse 3, it was the pride of Edom's heart that had deceived them. And the picture there was, they thought so highly of themselves, they had false hope. They thought no one can destroy us, and their hopes were there. They had false hopes that then disappointed The same thing happens here in verse 7. The men who were at peace with you, you had a truce with them. You had hope that they would come and defend you in battle. And they broke your hopes. They broke their promises of peace. The men, the men who eat your bread, or sorry, the men who are at peace with you have deceived you. But then description number three, they've prevailed against you. Well, that's a pretty, uh, pretty easy one to understand. They've taken you over. They have forced their will upon you. And kind of the point of a treaty or a covenant was, we're not going to impose our will on you. We will, we will agree to disagree. We'll agree to coexist and be each other's allies. You can be your nation. We'll be ours. And we won't interfere in each other's politics. But then the nations come and they take over and eat them. And finally then, number four. It says they've, um, they've laid a wound under you. They who eat your bread have laid a wound under you. This has the, it's the word picture of they've laid a trap under you. So picture it. These nations, these mighty nations come against Edom. They know they're getting destroyed. And so they retreat. They run as fast as they can for the hills, for their neighbors. They try to get away. And maybe some escape to their neighbor's territory. But when they get there, there's a trap. Oh, welcome. We'll defend you. And then they turn them over to the enemy. 
That's the word picture we get. They flee, they think they find help, and they find a trap instead. But then Esau's response is here at the very end of Obadiah 7. There is none understanding in him. Obadiah, he he pauses talking about this mighty destruction coming from the nations. And he says, Esau has no understanding. Maybe that means they don't understand the destruction that's coming for them, the judgment that's coming. Um, Maybe they don't understand that their allies are going to betray them. Or maybe it's both. Either way, here's the picture. Edom is high and lofty. They think they can escape the judgment of God. They have wronged God's chosen people and they say, God can't strike us down. But Obadiah says they have no understanding. Judgment is already determined for them. And I think that's a powerful application for us to think of as well. Every time that we knowingly and willingly sin, isn't it really us saying, I think I can escape God's judgment on this one? Isn't it really saying, maybe God won't see me? Or maybe God doesn't care. It's just a little sin. Or, Jesus already died for my sins. I'll just commit one more. I'll get forgiven. That's pretty arrogant. That's the attitude of Esau here. They say, I'll escape God's judgment. But realize, you can choose your sin. But you can't choose your punishment, the consequence. Now I realize there's no condemnation. Remember Romans chapter 8? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means you will not experience the judgment and the wrath of God if you are a believer, if you are a son and daughter of God. However, there is chastisement. Just like a father disciplines the son or the daughter whom he loves, God also disciplines his sons and daughters out of love. When we stray, there is chastisement that will come. And so I would extend to you this truth that we see, the inescapable justice of God. You can't outrun God's justice. Be sure your sin will find you out. We're on Christmas break right now, I think. Is everybody on Christmas break? Oh, good. Okay, finally. No one can rub it in anymore. We're on Christmas break. How are you spending your free time? Are there things in your free time on Christmas break that you'd rather some people just didn't know about? Is there some... But no, I'm being serious. I'm being... Hey guys, I'm being serious. Who you really are comes out when you're all alone, when you're in secret. So I'd encourage you. Realize you can't outrun God's justice, but realize God's justice has been satisfied in Jesus Christ and His shed blood on our behalf. And so though you sin abundantly, God's grace is there in abundance. And it's available through Christ. Run to Christ. That's what this whole season's about. So there's your application. Any further comments or thoughts here on Obadiah? Mr. Peter? It's been fascinating to know the story of how this message was delivered to Edom. Like, you know the story of how the message of God's judgment was delivered to Syria, to mm-hmm. in the book of Jonah. Yep. Maybe we'll find that 
Maybe we will. Yeah, and what would it, what did Edom think when they got this message? Mm-hmm. Couldn't have been good. Couldn't have been good. Hmm. Other thoughts here as we close it out? All right, well then let's close in prayer, shall we?